The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Hello, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group, and I am the host of the What to Know podcast. I have the pleasure today of sitting down with two Johns, John Hinshaw and John Orwin. Um, John Hinshaw, who I'll start with, was most recently the EVP and Chief Customer Officer at HP Enterprise. Uh, He is also a board member of DocuSign, Bank of New York Mellon, and the National Academy Foundation. And he is um, heavily involved in an event we're going to talk about during this, so I won't spill the beans. The other John is John Orwin. John was uh, past president up until recently and CEO of Relipsa. Uh, he is also occupying much of his present time as a board member with Seattle Genetics, Array Biopharma, and Retrofin. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you very much. So, first of all, I will paint the picture that we're sitting here um, in John Hinshaw's house, and I won't disclose exactly where, but uh, we're next to his wine cellar, and uh, it's fun to be able to. The, the location is always, you know, plays a nice little role in where we're doing this. Um, but I do want to jump in and talk a little bit about your backgrounds, right? So, um, John Orwin, we'll start with you, right? You you come from a uh, heavy pharma and biotech background. Um, you've worked at places, like I said, most recently at Relipsa. You've worked at Genentech, J&J, uh, Sharing Plow Merck. Um, what have you seen over the, the past you know, 20, 30 years and the evolution of the space? And this will lead into a question that I'll ask after this once we let uh, John Hinshaw respond. Sure. Thanks very much, Aaron. I think what we've seen is uh, that the industry has always been comprised of multiple stakeholders working together. So big vertically integrated pharmaceutical companies, academic medicine, physicians in the field, biotech companies, basic researchers. But over the past three decades, and I'm just coming up on three decades in the industry, what we've seen is a lot of consolidation among the big pharma companies. Um, And that has made those kinds of collaborations and alliances with the other stakeholders that much more important. And maybe one not entirely unique, uh, but somewhat unique aspect of my career is that I've gone back and forth between large companies uh, like a Johnson & Johnson and like a Merck uh, Shearing Plow, but also um, a couple of startup companies like Relipsa and before that, uh, I was CEO of a company called Affimax. So it's in that ecosystem that things get done in our space. And I guess what we've seen is um, that the the basic research that's feeding our better understanding of the diseases has really made those collaborations more important than ever and uh, prom- holds a lot of promise, I think, for the treatment of all diseases, but cancer in particular. Yeah, and interesting that speaking of consolidation, we did have the announcement of Gilead acquiring Kite this morning for, I think, $11 billion. So proving your point. Um, John Hinshaw, we'll shift over to you. So so while John Orwin has come up in the biotech pharma world, you've come up really in the tech slash uh, aerospace world and have held positions, senior positions, places like Verizon, Boeing, most recently at HP Enterprise. What have you seen in the tech sector? And, you know, I guess I'll ask you, has anything surprised you in terms of the evolution over your time in the space? I think what's interesting is regardless of the sector, uh, technology has played a huge role in what we enjoy in our lives today. So we all carry these 
cell phones around that uh, run our lives. Uh, that's all possible because of the technology revolution in telecom that happened in the 90s, really, and spilled over into the early part of uh, the last decade. And then in the aerospace world, when you get on an airplane today, as you all know, it's pretty much fly-by-wire. Uh, today, the Dreamliner plane uh, from Boeing, when I spent most of my time at Boeing working on, uh, is a flying data center with tons of uh, technology in it and then streaming all the information from the airplane back to the ground. So when that plane approaches uh, landing, if it has something that needs to be tweaked a little bit before the next flight, there's a technician waiting with the right part and turns it around and goes. And then certainly uh, at Hewlett Packard and Hewlett Packard Enterprise, helping customers do the same thing in every single industry, uh, including uh, pharma and life sciences. So. Um, I think regardless of what industry you're in these days, technology plays a huge role in your products and the way your customers think about you and in your ability to innovate. Yeah, and I think that does get to my next question, which is while you're both from very diverse backgrounds, uh, you have worked at some big companies, some recognizable companies, but I think we are seeing this convergence. You started to answer that question. I think the data piece is one of those. Um, John O., you know, what have you seen in terms of these two industries starting to come together and you know, how does that convergence continue to happen? Yeah, I, I think <clears throat> a couple of, of really broad developments that have major impact and potential are one, molecular diagnostics. So understanding the molecular basis of disease, which results in the generation of huge amounts of uh, data. And how do you take that data and put it into meaningful, actionable information? And I think that speaks to John's side of the business, which is partnering with technology companies. Um, the other is really uh, the, the advent and regular use now of uh, electronic case records and patient information. We we have a, a very fragmented healthcare system that resulted in information that was largely paper-based and didn't speak, files didn't speak to each other, or charts didn't speak to each other. Now we live in a world where increasingly healthcare providers are connected electronically, and that allows for a vast amount of information to be utilized. And the combination of those two things, more patient data, um, and better biologic or molecular understanding of disease will allow us, I think, going forward to really tailor our therapies so that we get the right treatments to the right patients. And I can't think of an area where that's more important than in the oncology space. Yes, and, and we will get to the relevance of the oncology piece in just a second. I think just to add one more, um, John H., you mentioned the fact that you know we have these smartphones. These smartphones increasingly have these incredible sensors in them. Um, things like Fitbits and other devices are going to continue to sort of play a role in that, right? So we're really seeing that. I do want to ask you a quick question, which I didn't have in our prep, but I, you've spurred an idea, which is it does seem like a lot of the major players like Facebook, like Twitter, like Amazon are starting to get into this health space, right? Not necessarily as their primary business, but they realize the importance of it. Maybe I could get each of you just to comment on you know, does this help move the needle? Does this help us solve cancer, the moonshot, all those good things? And what role do, do these types of companies play in this ecosystem? Yeah, I think it does because if you think about it, with all the fun that we have in our lives and all that technology has brought us, at the end of the day, the most important thing is how healthy we are as human beings and how long our lives will 
continue and the quality of that life accordingly based upon the health care that we receive, both preventative health care, which to your point on all kinds of sensors telling you to walk more steps, or I even have an app on my phone that'll take my EKG now if I need to, which used to require you know, a trip into the doctor and getting strapped up and all of that. So I, I do think both preventative, it's helpful, but then also um, as we look at uh, certainly John referenced oncology and, and cancer research, the, the disease that um, has been the toughest to tackle for most people, that you, you see both companies and um, philanthropic leaders of companies start to put more money towards trying to figure out how to help there and how to use data, how to use even, if you think about Facebook, you, you reference Facebook, how to have anybody with a particular disease um, that's out there on Facebook connect and share real-time experiences. Hey, this is what's working for me. Hey, have you thought about that? Hey, here's a great doctor that has been super helpful to me. Hey, let's collaborate together. So I do think that the the social aspect of the lives we live is actually helping in this fight as well. Yeah, I would just add to that that <clears throat> fighting cancer in many cases is a, a lonely battle that people face. Um, and in the early days, you know, one of the struggles that caregivers and indeed companies that were making medicines for patients struggled with was how to get those patients together and create a sense of community when each of them is feeling as though they're facing, you know, this diagnosis and this challenge alone. One of the earliest applications of social media and in fact, just the internet itself um, on the marketing side was really connecting patients together with each other, with other advocates, um, and with and with caregivers, and so then we can bring that sense of community to patients, and I think that's important. At the complete other end of uh, technology, if we just look at you know some of the wearable technology, uh, like John mentioned, you know the ability to actually tailor the treatment to the patients physiological circumstances is really critical and interesting as well. So I recently looked at a technology where you could time the release of nicotine through a patch to the actual uh, sort of diurnal variations and cravings that a person would experience. And, you know, the hope is that that would allow them to uh, more readily uh, quit smoking which has been a big objective. But there's so many applications like that. Um, so that it's really hard to say where the, you know, where the technology ends and where the, you know, where the treatment begins. That they're so completely integrated at this point. Yeah, let me ask you a quick follow-up, actually, before you hand the mic over. Um, just we started this way, and it, it got me thinking, you know, how long is it before an Amazon or a Facebook acquires a Relipsa or, you know, another life sciences or, you know, sort of startup pharma company? I think our industry is so specialized and so regulated and already fairly well dominated in terms of, you know, a handful of very large, fully integrated players that I would see, you know, those other companies as being, um, I don't want to say peripheral, but connected in a way that allows companies to leverage the technology, but not wishing to acquire the entire company. It's not. It's not an easy business, and definitely not for the for the faint of heart. I mean, it's it's ten years, and you know, between one and a half and two billion dollars to develop a drug. It's really like, in that sense, no other business. But I do think what we'll continue to see, as long as 
there's venture money to support new ventures and the development of new technologies is you'll continue to see new company formation, technological innovation, and then acquisition. Um, and in fact, we saw that in the case of, uh, of my company where we were acquired approximately a year ago. And that was, I don't know, you know, probably eight or 10 years in the making and several hundred million dollars worth of uh, investment. But I think for companies outside the space to come in um, has been tried and hasn't always gone all that well for the acquirer. So That's true. I, it does remind me, though, there is Verily, who is a client of ours, and uh, we just interviewed Jess Mega. Her, her interview will be coming out soon. So Google's life sciences arm and interesting to see where that goes. And certainly they're a data play. So I think, you know, John H. more naturally in the space that you're talking about. I do want to shift gears now a little bit, and the real reason we're here today is there is the uh, American Cancer Society's Discovery Gala. It's coming up in September, September 16th, which is a Saturday at the um, Fairmont, I believe, in the city. Um, last year, John, you were the chair, uh, John H. I do need to make sure I'm specific about this. And John O, this year, you're the chair. I'd love to just hear your stories. I know a little bit of it may have to do with dogs, um, which may sound funny, but uh, you were giving me the story as I came in, uh, John. And so how did you come you know, to be involved in this amazing organization and support this uh, charity gala that's coming up? So for me, it started with the Cancer Society event, very similar event in Chicago uh, back in 2009, where Boeing was a major sponsor. In fact, the, um, the, uh, the key sponsor of that event presenting sponsor, as it's called. And uh, I got very involved at that point, partnering with a lot of Boeing's key um, suppliers, Boeing's key customers to help build out that event into uh, not only the Chicago community, but connected well to Boeing. And then stayed with it um, while at Boeing and then moving out here a few years ago, also got involved in the San Francisco chapter and then was fortunate, my wife Julie and I, able to share it last year and bring in um, not only a lot of the Bay Area companies, but also partners of Hewlett Packard Enterprise and, and a lot of great uh, pharma companies as well. Um, you know, the dog story, it's interesting, uh, John and I uh, here today, our, our uh, respective dogs are playing right outside um, the door here as we're talking about it. I just had to signal my wife because I think she wasn't quite sure whether we were uh, finished or not and was going to let the dogs come in and play. So... Uh, but the story there is uh, uh, three years ago, almost three years ago, at the Chicago event, my wife and I bid on um, the Cancer Society puppy that's auctioned off many years in Chicago's Chicago tradition. That um, was the father um, paired with another um, lab that we had as the mother to produce a litter last year of puppies, one of which we auctioned off at last year's. Cancer Society uh, event here in uh, San Francisco, and I'll let John uh, tell us the rest of the story. So I've on the, been on the board of ambassadors, I think, for the last four years. I think the event's been running for about seven years in San Francisco, and um, you know the the roles and responsibilities of the board of ambassadors include recruiting other ambassadors and other sponsors. Um, but we also get a preview of uh, everything that's going to happen that night. So I had a really early preview on this puppy um, not long after her actual birthday. And I'd always wanted uh, a black Labrador retriever. Uh, and so I saw an angle and I 
didn't really talk about it all that much at home, uh, but I talked about it on the way to the event uh, so as not to create enough time for resistance, but maybe just enough for interest. Um, and I was determined to win that puppy at auction, which I did last year, and she's become uh, a close companion of mine and the whole family. So um, it's a way of sort of paying the whole thing forward, I guess. Um, but it has been a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, the American Cancer Society in San Francisco has been a build over that period of time. And I think that, uh, you know, historically, it's been more oriented toward support from life science and healthcare and pharmaceutical and biotech companies. <clears throat> but I've watched it evolve. And John and Julia, I think, did a fantastic job last year bringing in a lot of other companies and especially in the technology space that have kind of taken the whole event to just a completely different level. And so it was really uh, an, an honor and an opportunity, but big shoes to fill uh, to take this on for, for this year. And I think going forward, we hope to have the support of continued support of technology companies and life science companies uh, and lots of other industries because cancer you know, doesn't know any, uh, any boundaries age or uh, industry. So it's, uh, it's an exciting year for my wife, Denise, and I. Well, it's great. And um, I, I love hearing the story. And I guess as a little beware, whoever bids on the puppy this year, if that's one up for auction, then you know that you'll become the uh, head of the gala, you know, next year. So I, I jest, of course, but I would like to dive a little bit into the event itself. Uh, I did have the luxury of sitting down with Adam Klein, who I know is the winner of the Millennials versus Gen X Survivor Edition. Wonderful young man. He's one of the keynotes. Lost his mother uh, to lung cancer and uh, supports her cause. Um, I know that there's an auction which we just referenced. Uh, Juanita made sure that I would mention the honoree who I'm going to probably butcher his name, but Dr. David uh, Gandera, um, who's the director of thoracic oncology, um, the thoracic oncology program and professor and senior advisor to the director at UC Davis at the Comprehensive Cancer Center. So that's a mouthful, but it sounds like he's doing some amazing things. He's also a member of the Lung Cancer Dream Team. Um, tell us a little bit more, you know, John, uh, oh, you have put this together this year, but what can people come to expect? Uh, I know there's an after party as well. We're sponsoring that W2O group, but, you know, as they're sitting through this, I believe it starts at 530 on Saturday and runs all the way through you know, what are some of the things that they should be looking forward to and any other little hidden gems? Sure. And um, an interesting thing about David Gandera is that he was actually in practice and specializing in lung cancer in 1994 uh, when I launched a product uh, in that space. So that gives you a sense of how long people have been working in this space. It's something that cuts across multiple generations, people can spend their entire career um, to make uh, a, a single or combination of advances. It's, this is a very long, long battle. Uh, but it's great to have Dr. Gandera at the event. Um, and it's great to have some young people, you know, coming to the event as well. Adam, as it turns out, was a, f a friend of my uh, kids in high school. And they had always remarked on what a remarkable young man he is. And he uh, organized the Relay for Life at their school. So, so his involvement with the American Cancer Society and just 
uh, with not-for-profits in general predates, um, you know, the tragic early loss of his his mother. Um, but she passed away from lung cancer um, while uh, that uh, uh, survivor was being filmed or in development. And um, it's something that his his relationship with his his mom uh, was incredibly meaningful to him, and so he decided that he would, you know, spend a certain uh, amount of his energies giving back and making sure that people have the tools they need to fight lung cancer and and cancer in general. So I'm absolutely thrilled um, that he was uh, willing and able to spend the evening with us and talk about his experience on the show, uh, but also reflect on his relationship with his mom and why uh, continuing to invest in cancer research is so important to him. Um, maybe on the other end of the spectrum, we have Kevin Nealon, who uh, I could remember from his uh, NBC Saturday Night Live days, and um, apparently he has quite a passion for this as well. And I think he's going to bring um, a lot of a lot of humor to the event as well, so that uh, so that it's fun. John H, anything else to add? Yeah, just a few things. Uh, you know, I think if you're attending this for the first time, or if it's been a few years. Um, you know, it starts off uh, with a nice welcome reception and a silent uh, auction with a host of great things to bid on, from jewelry to trips to wine uh, and many, many other things. And that's a lot of fun. It's also a good kind of get-to-know-you time for the people around the room. Uh, it's a black tie, black tie optional kind of event. So everybody's dressed really nicely, having a great time. Uh, of course, there'll be uh, plenty of good uh, wine served along the way as well. And uh, my wife, Julia... Um, is uh, ensuring that this year by being connected up to some of the vintners in Napa who are going to sponsor us like Blackbird uh, Vineyards and, and others. Uh, and then um, we move on to the main event. Uh, and, and as John outlined, we have um, you know great speakers, great entertainment, great food, uh, great interaction amongst all of the guests. Uh, and then we get to uh, the main event, uh, which is the, um, the live auction. Uh, where we auction off some terrific trips, um, and there's some always fun bidding between different members of the crowd. As John referenced, he uh, outbid everybody for that puppy last year, uh, which was lots of fun. And then we also do, um, you know, uh, raising um, hope, what we call it, where we uh, do a paddle raise uh, to sponsor um, cancer research as well. And we have folks who are actually in the field um, talking about what that's meant for them. For example, we. This year funded a uh, new researcher um, at UCSF in some of the work he's doing related to, to lung cancer. So it's a super fun evening. As you mentioned, there's an after party afterwards. It keeps going to the wee hours of the morning. Uh, really everybody getting together and celebrating um, their contributions uh, to, uh, to this important cause. Well, that's great. And uh, I look forward personally to attending and I've never been before, so I'll be a newbie and I'll know probably since we have a dog already, I don't need to necessarily bring another one. So I will not be your gala chair next year. Uh, I do want to shift gears one more time to just a little bit more about you. One of the things that the listeners of the What to Know podcast show like to hear about is you know, who's influencing the influencers or what is inspiring them. And so I usually like to know, is there a particular person or is there a business book or both? Um, John, you know, Hinshaw, I know you mentioned that there's a book that has a, sort of a funny title, but a really good message. We're going to self-edit the title of the book. Uh, but tell us a little bit about that and, and why you chose it. Yeah, a good friend recommended this earlier this summer. Um, and it's a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a 
F asterisk asterisk, uh, you know, similar to the word flip, but a different word. Um, and when I first heard about it, I thought, well, why would I want to read a book like that? And, and uh, it's by uh, Mark uh, Manson, by the way. And the, the book is really helpful in, in causing you to think about what's really important in life and what is worth giving a flip about. Um, and in many cases, what's not worth giving a flip about. And I think in our lives, so many things hit us every day. And the busier we are, the more things that come into our lives. Uh, and it's often hard for us to figure out which one should I care about and spend time with that are going to have real meaningful impact on others and my family and what I really care about and which ones are just distractions and not important and can be ignored or delegated and given to somebody else. So I thought it was it's a good quick read and uh, it really helped me sort of reorient the way I was thinking about priorities. Well, that's great. And I did tell John that um, he would not be the first one to use an expletive on the show if he chose to, but he's an upstanding guy. And I guess in supporting such a great cause and knowing that we're going to get so much listenership here, we kept it clean. Uh, But thank you for that recommendation. Now, John Orwin, you had an interesting take, which we've actually had with a few other guests. And that was, I think you said in grad school, you swore that there was a day where you didn't necessarily want to have to read business books. Um, you have some different flavors, but uh, one of them will be a slightly similar answer to one of our other previous guests. Talk a little bit about you know, a book that you've read recently and your overall thesis on reading books and, and how they uh, influence you. Sure. No, that's right. Um, I went to business school at night over a period of five and a half years. And so most of my reading during that time was assigned readings uh, and books in the business genre. Um, so when it came out the other end of that, uh, I decided that I would be very sparing in my selection of uh, business titles, and I have been. So I'm, I always read two books at one time. Um, I'm always reading a piece of fiction, um, and I'm always reading a, a piece of nonfiction. And the nonfiction pieces tend to run a, more along um, history and biography. And I just happen to be reading right now um, a book by Condoleezza Rice uh, called The Long Road to Democracy. And I find it a really interesting read. I, I like to look at trends, including uh, business and politics, kind of through the long arc of history. And what makes this book in- interesting, I think, is we sort of take for granted that democracy is the natural state of things because that's how we've grown up in the United States. Uh, but in fact, it's not the natural state of things. The natural state of things looks a lot more like, uh, you know, anarchy. Um, and so what is achieved in democracy is, is really important and understanding how it's achieved and how it's maintained, um, I think is what uh, Condi Rice sets out to do in this book. She uses a bunch of different examples of countries and their conflicts and how they've come through and the importance of um, different democratic institutions. Um, anyway, it's not a particularly long read. I'm not sure I would call it a light read, uh, but it's an interesting one. And um, I, I'm always reading, if not a book like that, I'm always reading a book about history or biography. Um, I, I find that um, it keeps me more centered myself. Yeah, and I think it's interesting given the times we're living through right now with no political agenda, but um, your comment about democracy. And I think if there's a silver lining to some of the craziness that's going on, good or bad, it is that it's reinforcing that our forefathers did actually sort of know what they were doing and that they did put a lot of safeguards in. And I think in times like this where you don't really know what the next day is going to look like, knowing that um, what a democracy looks like. And certainly she was a very smart woman who lived under, at the time, I think someone that 
people loved or hated in, in Bush uh, W. Um, and today is looking a lot more sane, both him and Condoleezza Rice. So um, I'll have to put that onto my list. So thank you. So the final question is a little bit more fun, and that is one that I like to ask all my guests, and that is um, just getting to know you a little bit personally and what makes you tick. So I like to find out, you know, assume you're stranded on a deserted island. Um, you have one album that you can choose, you know, assuming albums still exist. Which album would you pick and why? And John Hinshaw, we'll start with you. Well, that's an easy one because I'm fresh off of the concert last week at the Greek Theater in Berkeley, and uh, Tom Petty put on an amazing uh, show there. And so uh, I don't know about album, but certainly playlist would be all of his greatest uh, hits, including Free Falling and, and others. So uh, he's, he's definitely floating through my mind. Well, it's awesome and certainly a great place to see uh, a show. And um, I've yet to make it over there. My daughter's seen a couple shows over there, but uh, you can do worse than seeing music over in Berkeley or Oakland. Um, John Orwin, how about you? I have somewhat of an obsession with music, so I do actually have a lot of uh, vinyl as well as CDs, as well as, um, you know, obviously MP3s now. So there's a lot more portability, but I still listen to my, my vinyl albums. And I think I would have to probably reach into that collection and grab uh, the album Asia by Steely Dan. And that was an album that I listened to in high school that I think bridged from rock and pop to uh to jazz it was sort of a gateway drug if you will um i love jazz i love rock i even love uh classical but that album was really um an important one for me and i still go back and listen to the vinyl whenever i get a chance well it's funny i think you and i are roughly about the same age and uh so i listened to a lot of my father's album collection early days the Jimi hendrix of the world and paul simon and certainly asia by steely dan I remember we lived in uh, Massachusetts and cold winters, doing my homework late at night, and my dad would have Asia on, and uh, I can still, anytime Steely Dan comes on, it brings me back, and so that's a good choice. It is a very easy listening type of album. Um, well, that is the end of the podcast, and so I want to thank you both, um, John Hinshaw, John Orwin, uh, for doing this for us. We're really looking forward to experiencing the gala coming up we certainly encourage uh i know that i think it's either sold out or, or close to sold out um but certainly for anyone that wants to contribute that's a great cause it's a great event and, and getting involved i think as both of these gentlemen have is is certainly welcome so um this is aaron strout cmo of w2o group host of the what's to know podcast john and john thank you both for doing this today thank you thank you Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.